Our reading this morning is from Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. This is what Holy Scripture says. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks, God. Well, good morning. Last Sunday after church, I was sitting with our Love Your Neighbor team eating lunch at the hangar when I heard the news, like many of you, that Kobe Bryant died in a horrible helicopter crash that killed his daughter and seven other passengers. And like the Challenger explosion and the Twin Towers falling on 9-11, I think this is one of those events that Many of us will remember where we were when we heard about it. That happens with significant tragedies. We remember these moments because they shock us. They shake us out of our ordinary, normal routines. And like all tragedies, uh, people soon begin asking the question, who's to blame for this? With Kobe's death, the news reports began almost immediately asking about the helicopter pilot. Was he qualified? Uh, why were they flying when other air traffic was grounded because of the fog? Uh, these are normal questions, normal reactions we have when we hear situations like this. And if you have your sermon guide, that's the first point I want to draw your attention to, is that often when tragedy strikes... We look for someone to blame to help process our grief. We look for someone to blame to help process our grief. We want to make sense of it. We want to understand it because when tragedy happens like this, we feel so vulnerable and we're reminded that life is fragile. Life feels so fragile in these moments because death comes so suddenly and unexpectedly and a life that has so much potential is suddenly cut short. I heard several sports radio commentators make this statement. You know, uh, this happened and, and I'm reminded I just need to grab my family, my loved ones, hold them close, tell them I love them. And the basic idea is this, that life is short, every day is a gift, love those who are close to you, and be grateful. And I, and I would agree that those are wise words. Life is short, every day is a gift, love those who are most dear to you, be grateful. Those are good words, those are wise words, 
But I'm not sure those are the words that Jesus would have given us this week in light of what happened. I'm not sure. Maybe he would say that. But I doubt that was all that he would say. At least that's what seems apparent in our passage this morning. This passage is about tragedy. And there's a lesson we can learn when tragedy strikes. Uh, Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 13 of Luke. We're told that there were some present listening to Jesus' teaching. And Jesus previously had been teaching a lot about judgment, the judgment to come. And those who were present, uh, somebody tells Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, Pilate was a Roman governor in Jerusalem. So he worked for the Roman emperor, and his job was to keep the peace in a very contentious part of the world. Now, the ancient historian Josephus uh, records several atrocities like this in his writings. In one incident, 6,000 Pharisees were butchered. In another incident, 3,000 protesters were slaughtered in Jerusalem during Passover. So the death of these Galileans was not an unusual event. But it was a tragedy, and someone in the crowd brings it up because they want to know who's to blame. I imagine they want Jesus to blame the Romans. They want Jesus to rile up the crowd and get them angry at their oppressors. But Jesus knew that there were also some who were likely blaming the Galileans themselves and and that they somehow deserved to be massacred in this way, and that God was specifically punishing them because they were extreme sinners. In verse 2, you notice, he says, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And Jesus brings up a second example in verse 4. He says, Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam, this tower would have been on the outside of the the, uh, old city of Jerusalem, the walls... might have been built as an aqueduct to, to uh, help supply water. Uh, it were, Jesus says it killed these people. Do you think that was because they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So notice Jesus uh, refers to Ga- uh, Galileans, uh, which was the rural part of, of Israel, and he refers to uh, people in Jerusalem, the urbanites, the sophisticated ones. Um, he, he's basically making this point that, you know, who, whoever you are, tragedy can strike. And that's that third point there in your guide, that tragedy, tragedy can strike anyone, anytime, anywhere. And I think that was what was so startling for some of us with Kobe's death, Right? It's like you you almost think some people are beyond tragedies such as this. But, But no matter how famous, how powerful, how wealthy, whether you're a Galilean from the rural parts of Israel or you're a sophisticated urbanite in Jerusalem, tragedy can strike. We're all equals. We're all in the same boat. 
And Jesus really is answering his own question by even offering this question, do you think they were worse sinners or worse offenders? Jesus is basically saying, no, they weren't. They weren't. You see, we like to categorize people. We like to say those people are sinners. Those people are bad. That's why bad things happen to them. Look in the book of Job. If you've ever read the book of Job in the Old Testament, you know Job had all these terrible things happen to him. And his friends, if you can call them friends, tell him, well, Job, that's because you've obviously done something to deserve this. But when you read the book, you find out at the end, that's not necessarily the case. Or if you read John's gospel, Jesus is walking with his disciples and they pass by a man who was born blind and his disciples ask him, is his blindness caused by his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, neither, that's not the point. You see, we want to categorize people and the Bible is saying to us, wait a minute, there's only one category. We all fit in one category. And Paul tells us that category in his letter to the Romans in chapter 3. It's a famous passage. It's fundamental to understanding where we all stand. Listen to Paul's words in chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We want to put people in categories. And really we have three choices in which category we're going to put people in. Uh, The first choice is to put people in the category that were all basically good. And that, that is the dominant view of, of many people in our society, that all of us are essentially good people. Now, I would argue to believe that is to ignore a lot of reality and to try to explain away all the bad things that people do. Well, they weren't loved as kids or... You know, they didn't grow up with a good education or, um, you know, they, they don't have the opportunities that other people have. That's why they do the bad things that they do. And that kind of thinking leads us to ask the question, why does bad things happen to good people? But there's an assumption there that if we live a good life, good things will happen to us. That if we try our best, if we are people of good intentions, then somehow God owes us. Let me ask you, do you think God owes you anything? Does God owe you a good life? Well, if you're essentially a good person, maybe you think that. That's one category we can put people in. We're all essentially good. Second category is to break people up. Some people are good, some people are bad. And if we do that, we fall into, I would say, self-righteousness, bigotry, segregation of all types. I believe that kind of thinking 
is what led to many of the atrocities in the 20th century. That's the kind of thinking Hitler believed in. Germans are good, Jews are bad. Look what happened. I believe that's infected a lot of the thinking in people's minds today. And why things are so contentious in our society. Those people are good, those people are bad. That's the second category. But what about this third category? What if we were to listen to what the Bible is telling us and we were to see that there's something broken in all of us? That all of us are equals because all of us are sinners. And that doesn't mean that we're worthless or not of any value. It just means that all of us are sinners before God. All of us fit in the same camp. All of us need to be rescued. That none of us deserve God's blessings. That the only thing we deserve in and of ourselves is God's just condemnation. What if we believe that? That you deserve it that I deserve it, that each and every person in this room deserved it. What if we were all in the same boat? I think that's the only way we can make sense of Jesus' words here. Jesus' response to this tragedy that took place. I mean, we tend to think that Jesus is a great comforter, and as a church, that's often what we bring people. We say, we focus on Jesus as our comforter. These people are saying, hey, this tragedy happened. These people died. Jesus, what do you think? Jesus says, Not, oh, be comforted. (laughs) What does Jesus say? He says, hey, instead of trying to determine whether these people deserved what they got because of their sin, you need to use this as an opportunity to look at your own sin. That's Jesus' comfort. Notice what Jesus says, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. And in verse 5, he says the same thing. Just in case you didn't get it, he repeats the point. No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How are we to make sense of Jesus' words here? Well, Jesus is calling us to repent, and that is a fundamental message throughout Luke's gospel. We can go back to chapter 3 in Luke, verse 8. There, John the Baptist is talking about repentance. He says, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Then Jesus in chapter 5 of Luke, he says these famous words, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then in Luke 15, we'll get there as we continue in our series in Luke, the story of the two lost sons, it's a story all about repentance. The younger son takes his father's inheritance and he goes and spends it all in excessive gluttony. But he, but he comes to his senses and he returns to the father sorrowful for what he's done and he's received and he's welcomed and a party happens. And then you've got the self-righteous older brother. You're left wondering, is he going to come to the party? Is he going to repent? And then if we go to chapter 18, there Jesus tells a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee is saying, 
I'm glad I'm not like those people. See, good people, bad people. I'm glad I'm not like them. The, the tax collector is saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says it's the tax collector who goes home justified because he's repented. And then if we go to chapter 24, there Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's explaining the whole point to his disciples. He said, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You see, it goes throughout the gospel. It's all about repentance. Now, I share this simply to show you that this is the message Jesus wants us to hear this morning, whether you are an elder here at King's Church or whether you're visiting for the first time, that we are all in need of rescue. We're all in the same boat. We all need the great physician to heal our souls and I really do believe that that is the solution to our contentious society. People writing books, people are trying to figure out what are we to do when we're all fighting each other. And all I can say is I just believe Jesus' words to repent, for all of us to hear those words, that is the key. That is the key. You see, and here's point five for your Look on your guide. When tragedy strikes, we want to judge others. But Jesus teaches us that tragedy offers us an opportunity to judge ourselves. To, and really, when I say judge ourselves, it's not to condemn ourselves. It's to examine ourselves, to evaluate ourselves, to be able to look honestly at our own hearts. That's what Jesus wants us to do. You might remember Jesus' words from, from Luke 6. He said, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that's in your own eye? That's simply what he's saying is look at yourself first. And when tragedy strikes, Jesus is asking us to look at ourselves and ask this question, am I right with God? Are you today right with God? When we experience these tragedies, we become afraid of something like this happening to us. And Jesus is saying, listen, there's something more terrifying than a helicopter crash or you having uh, some sort of sickness or something like that. The thing that's more terrifying is to stand in the presence of a holy God who will ask you for an accounting of your life. That is by far more terrifying. And are you good with God? Have you repented? Have you thrown yourself at his feet and asked for his mercy and for his grace? And that's true whether you view yourself as a little sinner, as someone who infrequently sins, or if you see yourself as this huge sinner who's excessively sinning all the time. Either way, Jesus is confronting us and saying, that is the issue. That's the bad news. But the bad news is followed with some very good news. Some very good news, number six in your guide, that repentance is the key to a life-giving relationship with God. Repentance is the key to a life-giving relationship with God. 
we think of one of the most famous passages in the Scriptures. Notice the language in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Effectively, Jesus is describing repentance and faith. He's saying, believe. In other words, repent and trust in Christ. And you won't perish. And Jesus is not talking about physically. He's talking about spiritually. Living in eternity without God. Dare I say hell. Jesus is saying there is life to be had, but it goes through repentance. And repentance is not only for the beginning of your relationship with God, which is often what we believe. We believe, well, we repent to become a Christian, and then it's all about our good works. It's all about trying really hard to be a good person. No, repentance is a lifestyle for the Christian. Repentance is a daily practice for the Christian. And that's what makes it life-giving. It's a daily occurrence and friends, repentance is not blubbering and self-loathing and, and, and beating yourself up. That's not what repentance is. I love uh, this idea that really repentance is insight. Repentance is understanding. Repentance is self-awareness. It's growing and seeing yourself as you truly are instead of going through life pretending that you're something you're not. It's insight about your true condition. And it's having the courage to face that. That's what repentance involves. But that's why, and this is the seventh point in your outline, repentance isn't easy or popular. Repentance isn't easy or popular. There's several reasons why it's not easy, and I'm not going to name all of them, because repentance has never been easy. That's why Jesus had to talk about it all the time. It's never been easy for us as human beings because we don't want to admit who we really are. But there's two reasons I want to mention of why it's particularly hard for us in our day and age in the 21st century living in Southern California. And the first reason is because we have been groomed in a consumer culture that has done everything it can do to say that you, you're fine just the way you are. Now, it's not me making this point. Let me, let me quote Federica Matthews Green. I, I have this rather long quote I want to read to you, but she's making this point. Notice this first line. Try telling a person who's been discipled by advertising that he's a sinner. Just sit on that for a while. That's, that's a great quote. A hundred years ago, a preacher would have seen heads nod in recognition at that familiar concept, but today's consumer is likely to be shocked and baffled. How could he be a sinner? All he knows is that he's unhappy because he does not have his fair share of stuff, and he isn't appreciated enough by those around him. Original sin? He will readily agree that everyone else keeps letting him down that he's estranged by the one holy God and needs to be reconciled, he's likely to respond, who is this God who thinks he's better than us? Bring up judgment day and you'll get to, 
to see someone genuinely appalled, the very idea just sounds so judgmental. And so that's a really a great challenge for us to, to be able to embrace this concept of repentance. The, the second reason is, is this, is that we live in a day and age where individual, or I, I will say this, expressive individualism is, is the path to life. That's, that's what we're told. Expressive individualism. In other words, um, in, in, in so many movies and music, in, in all sorts of areas, you're told this, that the path to true life is just to embrace who you are and accept that. You don't need to change. You don't need to be somebody you're not. The path to life is to embrace who you are already. You're good enough as you are. That's what we're told and Jesus says, no, the key to life is repentance. And what does it mean to repent? Repentance is a turning 180 degrees in the other direction. It's, it's turning from your sin. You're going in one direction and, and you repent and you turn around and you go in another direction. It's a change in your whole person. And being, turning away from your sin and turning towards Jesus. Now, we need to explain that because you can turn from your sin and not turn to Jesus. Do you see that? Uh, that's moralism for many of us as Christians. We turn from our sin, we see that we've, we're doing something wrong, and what do we do? We say, ah, I need to change. And so then you focus on yourself and you turn to yourself. You say, I need to change and I'm going to do it. I can be strong enough. I can do it myself. And so I'm going to commit to being a good person. And I'm going to beat this thing that is dragging me down. And that's often the message you hear from the church. You need to stop doing what you're doing. You need to straighten up your life and start doing the right thing. That's not repentance. That's not the kind of repentance Jesus is talking about. You see, the kind of repentance Jesus is talking about is to turn from your sin and to turn to Him, to trust in Him, to flee to Him, because this is the gospel. The gospel is to stop trusting in your righteousness and to trust in his righteousness. To see that in yourself you stand condemned before God, but in Christ you are a child of God. And you are embraced and, and free and God, God's grace is given to you in Christ by faith. And so that's the eighth point here in your guide is repentance isn't primarily what you're fleeing from. That tends to be what we focus on. But whom you're fleeing to. If you leave with anything today, that is the big blinking point. <laughs> you need to see who are you turning to. Because if it's just about changing your life and becoming better, 
then you just fall into that trap that if I do that, then God owes me. If I do that, then God will bless me. And, and, and that's if you, if you do fall into that trap, that will make repentance extremely hard because then you have to face the fact that maybe you continue to do the things you thought you had beaten. That's what's so hard about the Christian life. It's so hard to change. So hard to change. And we see that repentance really does involve our whole person. Our whole person. Um, First, repentance involves your head. Repentance involves your thinking and how you you see things. Um, To repent, you have to mentally, intellectually come to a place where you see what you're doing is wrong and see that God, what God tells you to do is right. You do have to intellectually come to that place. You have, your mind has to change. You, because so often when you're caught in sin, you, you're telling yourself, well, it's okay. You come up with explanations. You, you have ways to make it seem right. And, and t- repentance is that first stage is when your mind changes and you start to see, oh, goodness, this this really is wrong. God, you're right. And so intellectually, a, a transition happens, and intellectually in your mind, you turn 180 degrees. Now, that can happen, and you still not repent. I can change my thinking and be like, oh yeah, this is wrong, and now I'm going to do the right thing and still be far from God. That's where the heart comes in, the heart comes in, and, and really the heart is much harder to decipher in the repentance process because the heart softens your posture. You see, my, my thinking can change, but my heart can still be hard. And if my thinking changes, my heart doesn't, I can do the right thing and be bitter. Ever been there? I'm there all the time, let me tell you. you be, you're bitter you're angry, but, but you're doing the right thing. <laughs> so you take some solace in that. There's no joy, but you're doing the right thing. And all along, your heart is, is like metal. It's not soft. It's not pliable. And also what happens when your heart's not on board, here, here's what happens when your heart's not on board, is that you can do the right thing. Uh, you can even repent, but, and yet still be hardened to the person you've wronged. Did you ever be? be did you ever been there? Like, the, 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 I'm gonna. I'll bring marriage into this. Okay. Somebody uh, once said that pe- couples don't fall out of love; they fall out of repentance. That's a little nugget there for all you married folks. Think about that. People don't fall out of love, they fall out of repentance. Uh, Can I tell you, I'm going to get personal here, that um, this has been a journey for me the past three and a half years or more of doing couples therapy. Let me me just, I'm not going to get any specifics, but I'm just going to say, here's how the process of repentance is continuing to work in my life and in my marriage. Um, 
you know, we first went to couples therapy, and I was there thinking, okay, now the therapist is going to show my wife how she's wrong. Okay, show my wife how she's wrong, and that will solve all of our issues. And then after being in therapy for a little while, I was beginning to see, oh, wait a minute. You know, maybe there's some things that I need to see. And, and I began to see my thinking change. And I began to see, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, of course I've done some things. Of course I've wronged my wife. Of course there are things I've done wrong. And, and my thinking really did begin to change. But you know what? My heart was still hard. And so I began to try to do the right thing because I knew intellectually it was the right thing, but all the while I was bitter. And I, and I, I was hard to my wife. I, I wasn't sorry for the things. I, like, I didn't feel sorrow for the things I was doing wrong. Intellectually, I would have said, yes, that's wrong. Here, I wasn't soft. I wasn't soft. And so maybe some of you have been there. You know, you know what that is like. And that's what repentance is calling us to. It's calling us to a posture, a softness, sorrow. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, he talks about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is when you're sorry for, maybe you're sorry that you did something wrong. You're sorry that you're not the person you thought you were. You see how that's off? Or maybe you're sorry for getting caught. You're sorry for the consequences that you're going to experience. Do you see how that's off? Godly sorrow is, I'm so sorry I did this to you. You see the difference? It's to come to God and say, I'm sorry, God, I've done this to you. Repentance is personal. And finally, as we see, it's in the it's head, it's the heart. But finally, the fruit of repentance that happens in the head and the heart will lead to the hands. It will lead to action. It will lead to change. You see, if you're in a relationship with someone and you've repented time and time again and no change has happened in what you do and how you live, that person has every right to question your repentance. But you see, that's the kind... That only happens, you can only see that over time. You need time to be able to tell whether repentance is true. Time shows you. Over time, do you see change begin to happen? Do you see the fruit of the repentance in a changed life? And so that's what all of us are on. We're on this journey of 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 a lifestyle of repentance. That's what we want in our church. We want that to be a culture where we're all on this journey together and we're all encouraging each other in this journey together of, of, of a lives changed by the gospel. You know, when you think about repentance in action, I'll end with this short little example by Brennan Manning. He, he shares it. Um, for those of you who listen to Christian music decades ago, you're familiar with Rich Mullins. He he, he died in a tragic car accident a um, long time ago. But Brennan Manning talks about how Rich Mullins taught him an invaluable lesson about repentance. He says, you know, one uh, day 
uh, Rich Mullins got into this blistering argument with his road manager, Gay Quinzenberry, and angry words were hurled back and forth, and Rich stormed out the door. And early the following morning, uh, Gay was awakened from a sound sleep by a loud buzz of a motor outside her house. And groggily, she, she got up and looked out the window, and there Rich was mowing her lawn. <laughs> you know, he's mowing her lawn. He was trying to show his repentance through his hands, through, through action. And that's what Jesus is looking for from us, his people. And so I invite you into this life-giving relationship with God that Jesus is offering us this morning. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to spend some time thinking about your words to us, words that are, that are life-giving. May we hear it, may we respond, Jesus. And may we come to you, the giver of life. We pray in your name. Amen.